Father, thank you for your goodness toward us. Lord, we thank you for those folks who made commitments this morning to give their life to Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for them. We pray that you'll bless them abundantly. Lord, we pray that they'll get rooted and grounded in your word and really grow in their faith. Lord, I just thank you for the provisions that you've given us so that we can grow. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by your word. And we're here tonight, Lord, to study your word, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the peoples and nations, we Americans should understand that it's not a good idea to appoint a king. America was born out of an outrage over the king of England's abuse of power. And so when we read that Israel wanted to appoint a king, we of all people should know that this is not good. American author Walt Whitman writes, For many a promise sworn by royal lips and broken and laughed at in the breaking, the blows strike revenge, heads of the nobles fall, people scorned the ferocity of kings. People do eventually scorn the ferocity of kings. Israel, though, wanted to be like their neighboring nations. They wanted a king and all that comes with it, a throne, a crown, a coronation, a scepter, a court, pomp and circumstance. Rather than have faith in the invisible God, the Hebrews wanted a visible ruler upon which they could fix their aspirations and hopes. On the field of battle with the enemy breathing down their necks, they assumed it would be easier to rally around a leader that they could see with their eyes rather than trust in the Lord. From the outset... God wanted to be Israel's king. His ideal form of government was a theocracy, not a monarchy. But Israel ignored God's warning about the ferocity of kings and persisted in their demand for a king made of clay. Finally, God gave in and gave them a king, a king that they would regret again and again. And we're going to read about their first king Tonight, Now, Samuel's sons were the excuse that Israel gave to justify their request for a king. Verse 3 of chapter 8 tells us, His sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Unlike their godly dead, Samuel's sons were more crooks than judges. They were more into subverting justice than upholding it. We're then told, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, if Samuel's boys had actually been the issue, all that Israel would have had to do is ask for new judges. Remember, Israel's desire for a king predated Samuel's sons anyway. They tried to make Gideon king, but Gideon refused. The real motive is found here in verse 5. Make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Famous Bible commentary G. Campbell Morgan calls this the supreme wrong. 
He writes these words. Israel had been chosen to be unlike the nations, a people directly governed by God. But here we find them wanting to be like the nations. The word Israel means governed by God, and that was certainly his intent. God called Israel to be holy, to be set apart. In essence, to march to a different drummer. They were to keep in cadence with his will and wisdom. Instead, the Hebrews uttered the familiar refrain that all of us who are parents have certainly heard. Everybody else is doing it. So why can't I? The Lord reveals Israel's root problem. In verse 7, he says to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. The people's request for a king has nothing to do with Samuel or his boys. They just didn't want to submit and trust in God. The Hebrews wanted more than God to depend on. Perhaps they sensed a certain security and an authority they could see. Maybe they felt a king's demand would be less taxing than God's demand. Weren't they wrong about the less taxing part? (laughs) Or perhaps they concluded that a king would be easier to manipulate, and perhaps that was their motive. Maybe they wanted a system to follow, complete with a chain of command, complete with rights of succession, rather than a relationship to maintain. Whatever their specific reason, the bottom line was that they rejected God. They wanted more than God to depend on. How about you? Are you content with putting all your trust and all your faith in God and God alone? You should be. In verse 9, God tells Samuel to comply to the people's wishes, but to warn them of the ferocity of kings. And Samuel does so in verses 11 through 17. Here's a few excerpts. This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain in your vintage. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. And you will be his servants. Then in verse 18. And you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. As the old saying goes, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. History records the reign of very few benevolent dictators. We find that it's difficult for even a good man to handle the power and authority that is afforded a king. Of the 42 kings who will rule over either the combined empire or the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, only nine of these Hebrew kings receive a positive approval rating from God. Truly, God's words came true 
regarding these future kings that would reign over his people Israel. As I tell my kids, if your friends stick their heads in the oven and bake their brains, does that really mean that you have to do the same thing? Of course not. And if God forbids a particular activity, then he has forbidden it for a good reason. Israel learns this lesson. Israel learns it, though, the hard way. Guys, God doesn't want us to go with the flow of this world. He wants our lives to draw a contrast. He wants us to march to a different drummer. He wants our lives to be governed by God, not out winging it on our own. God wants us to be loyal to our relationship with him, different in our approach to life. And you and I, to do that, need the gumption to stand up and to stick out for Jesus Christ. Following God is trusting that his way is best, even when no one else in the room thinks so. It's sad, but no one in Israel apparently had that kind of trust in God. And despite the prophet Samuel's warning, we're told in verse 19, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but we will have a king over us. Chapter 9 introduces us to that king. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. Kish was a wealthy landowner and a man of clout in the community. And we're told he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. When you scan the crowd, it wasn't hard to pick out Saul. He was always head and shoulders above everyone else in the crowd. If Saul had played in the NBA, he would have signed for a million-dollar contract. He could have also parlayed his NBA career into a movie contract because we're told that as well as being tall, he was choice and handsome. Saul had Robert Redford's good looks and the height of Dikembe Mutombo. What a combination. Here was the proverbial hunk, tall, dark, and handsome. And as we'll see, he did end up playing for the kings, not the Sacramento kings, but the kings of Israel. In chapter 9, Kish loses a herd of donkeys, and he sends out Saul and his servant to round them up. You can read the verses. They canvass the countryside, maybe as much as a 100 miles in all, but no donkeys. Finally, Saul suggests that it's time to head home. But the servant knows of a man of God living nearby in the land of Zuf. He suggests that they go to this man of God for help. Maybe he can provide some divine insights into the whereabouts of these donkeys. When they arrive in Zuf, they find that this seer or this prophet is none other than Samuel. Samuel was headed to the high place to offer a sacrifice to God. The high places were elevated altars in the town square. 
You remember when Israel first entered the land, God forbid them making sacrifice on these high places. They were only to offer their sacrifices at the tabernacle in Shiloh. But according to Jeremiah 7 verse 12, when the ark was taken, the tabernacle in Shiloh was destroyed. That's why later when the ark was returned from the land of the Philistines, it didn't go back to the tabernacle. It went and was kept at Kiros Jerim rather than being returned to the tabernacle. Apparently, while the tabernacle was unoperational, God allowed the high places to function just as long as a priest was there to supervise the sacrifice. And that's what Samuel was going to do when his path crossed with Saul. In fact, just before, the day before, the Lord had actually spoken to Samuel and had given him a message. In verse 16, we're told, Tomorrow, about this time, the Lord says to Samuel, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Now, exactly 24 hours later, Samuel bumps into a sheepless Benjamite named Saul. It was a God thing. When Samuel sees Saul, the Lord speaks to him in verse 17. There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. The Lord makes his choice for king clear. And Samuel gets excited. He says to Saul in verse 20, And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you? And on all your father's house. In other words, Saul, you are the man around whom this nation will rally. You'd think Saul would be excited too, wouldn't you? But look at his reaction in verse 21. Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? He was puzzled. Now, at first glance, we assume that he was being humble, but I'm not so sure. Because humility and insecurity look a lot alike. The problem, though, is that they are two different animals. Humility is an other-centered attitude. The truly humble person is not concerned with himself. He's concerned about the people around him. He's so concerned about the people around him that he doesn't have time to worry about himself. But the insecure person is the selfish person because they are preoccupied with themselves. In fact, insecurity is the ultimate form of selfishness. I'm so worried about my image that I'm afraid that even if I step up and answer a call of God, I might fail. I might embarrass myself, so I would rather just maintain the status quo. Later, we're going to see plenty of reasons to believe that this was probably more an insecurity on Saul's part than it was an example of real humility. Now, Saul is invited to eat dinner with Samuel. Then he spends the night in the city, and the next morning, Samuel takes Saul to the outskirts of the town for a private coronation. In chapter 10, verse 1, Samuel anoints the first heir to the throne in Israel. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, 
Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Samuel then gives to Saul a series of signs that confirm his appointment. He wants Saul to be as assured of this appointment as he was. First, he tells him that he'll encounter two men by Rachel's tomb who will tell him that his sheep have been found. Second, he'll bump into three men by the terebinth tree in Tabor who will give him two loaves of bread. Third, he'll meet a group of prophets praising the Lord on the hill of God near the border of the Philistine territory. And fourth, he makes a wonderful prediction, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. And you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. You'd think if all four of these things came true, then Saul would be assured of the calling that God had on his life. I want you, though, to note the sequence of what happens to confirm God's blessing on Saul. Notice the four things that are predicted. What was lost will be found. Second, a hunger will get fed. Third, he will join in the praise of God. And fourth, he'll be filled and transformed by the Holy Spirit. Did you know that these are the same four ways that God confirms his blessing on us? We are the thing that was lost that now has been found by Jesus Christ. Our spiritual hunger gets met when we come to Jesus. A desire is born in our hearts to praise the Lord. And we're filled gloriously with the power of the Holy Spirit. And the end result is also the same. We are turned into another man. Before his conversion to Christ, Augustine was a flagrant sinner who lived with a mistress out of wedlock. The Lord changed his life, forgave him, gave him a new start. And one day after he had come to Christ... He saw this woman walking down the street towards him in his direction. And she was excited to see him. And she began to run, shouting to him, Augustine, it is I. It is I. But the story goes, Augustine turned and ran in the opposite direction, calling out over his shoulder, yes, but it is not I. It is not I. Isn't that glorious that it's no longer I? It's no longer the old you that lives, but God has transformed you and changed you into a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. The power of God can change a person into a new man. I believe that this fourth promise that he'll be filled and transformed by the Holy Spirit is really the only cure for a person that's bogged down and wrapped up in their own insecurities. It's when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and infuses us with that supernatural strength that suddenly our lives are turned inside out. Our focus is no longer on ourselves, either on our strengths or on our weaknesses. Suddenly, our focus is shifted onto the Lord and onto other people. At Pentecost, it was the power of the Holy Spirit that turned a petrified Peter into a power-packed preaching Peter. This is what turns us from wimps into witnesses, from flickers into flames. Ask the Lord to pour out His Holy Spirit upon your life. 
Not just with an eyedropper, but with a bucket. And he'll do so. In the waning seconds of a championship football game, after the outcome has already been decided, the victorious players will sneak up behind the victorious coach and they'll dump a bucket full of Gatorade on top of his head. This is after the victory has been won. But for the believer in Jesus, a similar outpouring is necessary for victory. We need the bucket poured on our head in order to win the victory. And if we ask God, He'll pour out the power of His Spirit upon our lives. In the last half of chapter 10, Samuel formalizes Saul's appointment as king before all the people in Israel. He calls the congregation together at Mizpah and rehearses the history of the nation. Then he parades the tribes before him and he whittles them down until Saul is selected. But Saul is nowhere to be found. And remember, too tall Saul was pretty easy to spot in a crowd. Where is he? Believe it or not, on the day of his public coronation as king of the nation, Saul is found hiding among the stuff, among the equipment. Again, this is not humility. This is insecurity. There's a big difference. You see, true humility is aware of its inadequacies. But it trusts the Lord and it rises up in the power of God to assume the position that God has granted. God prepared Saul for this day. He changed his heart. He enabled him to prophesy. He made him a new man. But you see, it's possible for God to change a man and for that man to fail to act on the fact He can allow his fears and his insecurities to slip back in and rob him of the victory that God intended. Has that happened to you? God has changed you. He has transformed your life. You've had an encounter with God. But rather than walk in that victory, your insecurities have crept in and have caused you to shrink back. And rather than stepping out in faith, You've maintained the status quo and it's robbed you of the blessings that God intended. During World War I, a munitions factory had a huge banner hung across the entrance into the compound. Emblazoned on the signs were the letters I-A-D-O-M. I-A-D-O-M. One day, a visitor entered the factory and he saw these signs. They were hanging everywhere on the walls, in the halls, all over the factory. Finally, he asked the supervisor what the letters meant. The company supervisor explained it's an acrostic for the phrase, it all depends on me. This was their motto. And this was the motto of Saul. Saul ignored the work that God had done in his heart. Saul relied on his own talents and his own attributes. And that's why his insecurity surfaced to paralyze him and to keep him down. Yes, he was tall. He was good looking. But he didn't feel tall enough to rise to this occasion, to be the king. Saul was tall in stature. But Saul was small in faith. Saul really is an interesting character. A physical giant 
but a spiritual midget. Shakespeare described King Lear saying, I, every inch a king. And that's the conclusion you would have drawn by just looking at Saul. He looked kingly. But you see, looks can be deceptive. Saul had potential for greatness. But rather than rise to the challenge, his habit was to shrink back and act impulsively. You see, Saul had a problem that many of us share. Saul was an externally motivated person. In other words, he was a reactionary. He always allowed his circumstances or the opinions of the people around him to dictate what he thought about himself in his reaction and behavior that would follow. In other words, to Saul, perception was more important than principle. What other people thought of him was more important than what God thought of him. God wanted Saul, and God wants us to be internally motivated people. He wants us to be guided by conviction and virtue and inward truth. But this was just the opposite with Saul. Before his coronation, Saul was afraid and fearful of people. His insecurities caused him to appear humble. But when he gained some success and some attention, he became enslaved to that attention. And we're going to find later he tried to hold on to it at all costs. You see, Saul was really the same before and after his success. To him, image was everything. When he lacked power, he was fearful to assume it lest he fail. When he possessed power, he was fearful of letting it go. This is a person who's externally motivated, who's living for the opinions of others. You may be like Saul. You've been called to step up. Instead, you've shrunk back. You're hiding among the stuff. When God wants you to step out and to step up, be a leader, be a servant. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what enables us to rise above our insecurities. When we find our security in Christ, we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to then act on that fact and learn to walk by faith. It's ironic, but Saul was really a microcosm of the nation as a whole. It's been said, a people usually get the leaders they deserve. And that's true. I saw an article in the U.S. News recently that put it this way. We look on our leaders in despair, but our leaders are really ourselves. In other words, we select leaders that mirror our own deficiencies. Israel wanted a king. Why? Because they were externally motivated. They wanted a king because they were looking at the practices of their neighboring nations and they wanted to be like them. God gave them a king who was externally motivated, who likewise lived for the approval and opinions of other people. After his coronation, Saul gets off to a good start. Samuel writes a manual on royal behavior. Brave and noble people come alongside Saul. And when his right to reign is questioned, he handles the criticism admirably. And he holds his peace. Saul's real test, though, occurs in chapter 11. 
the Ammonite army camps against the Hebrew settlement of Jabesh-Gilead. And they offer a peace, but it comes at a steep price. They'll sign a treaty with the Hebrews if each of the Hebrews will surrender their right eye. Peace for an eyeball. What a deal. The eyeball is a pretty vital piece of the body. Peace for an eyeball. I'm not sure I could see to do that. They, they suggest the right eyeball because the left eyeball was usually covered by the shield. So if your right eyeball was plucked out, then there wouldn't be no way for you to fight. You could be defensive, but you could never be offensive. Saul's army, though, comes to the rescue. And they defend Jabesh-Gilead. And in the aftermath of the battle, the victory over the Ammonites, someone suggests that the people who oppose Saul's coronation should also be punished along with the enemy. But Saul refuses. One of the good things that Saul did. He wants nothing to overshadow the salvation that God has accomplished for Israel. Noble on Saul's part. And no one really realizes it at the time, but this will be Saul's finest hour because the rest of the story is a sad, pitiful slide downward on the part of Saul. After the defeat of the Ammonites, the people go to Gilgal to celebrate and offer thanksgiving to God. And chapter 12 records Samuel's message on the occasion. He begins with a history lesson from Moses and Aaron through the period of the judges up to the very current day. And he makes two points. He says Israel continually forgets God, lapses into rebellion, but the Lord is always faithful. And even though a king was not God's plan, nevertheless, God is willing to bless if the people and their king will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice. Verse 17 mentions that this all takes place in the wheat harvest, which was late May, early June, the dry season in Israel. And yet at Saul's command, God sends thunder and rain. And the Lord sort of adds special effects to Samuel's sermon in order to help hammer home the points. Wouldn't it be great to be preaching a sermon and then, you know, kind of work it out with God in advance that at a certain point, you know, you'll get a thunderbolt and some lightning and some, you know, and that's kind of what the arrangement Samuel had here. Verse 23 is an extremely vital verse. After Samuel's sermon, And the Lord's affirmation of it. The people repent. And in verse 19, they ask Samuel to intercede for them. And Samuel tells them not to fear. The Lord is faithful. He won't forsake them. And neither will Samuel. For look at what he says here in verse 23. He says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Did you realize that there is such a thing as the sin of prayerlessness? This comes as a shock to most of us because we see prayer and treat prayer as an optional activity, as an elective rather than a part of the required curriculum. Guys, 
Prayer is an incredible privilege to touch the hem of his garment, to communicate with the Almighty. But prayer is more than a privilege. Prayer is a responsibility. It's our duty to pray for one another. Samuel says, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. After Saul's victory over Ammon, he dismantles his troops. He keeps a small militia behind, 2,000 to protect the king, and 1,000 are commanded by Saul's son, Jonathan. And Jonathan proves to be a feisty general, ready to fight the Lord's enemies. And so, while Saul sort of lays down his shield, Jonathan takes up his and attacks a Philistine garrison on the western boundary of Israel. And this, of course, angers the Philistines, who then make plans to launch an all-out retaliation against Israel. When the Hebrews see the 30,000 Philistine chariots, they panic. Some hide in caves, we're told. Others in pits. Others flee to the other side of the Jordan River. And Saul needs to act. From a military standpoint, the longer he waits to strike at the Philistines, the worse become his chances for victory. Every day he delays, this panic spreads among his people. He loses more and more Hebrews. They chicken out and he's seeing soldiers disappear out into the countryside. This delay is killing his chances. But he has to wait for seven days. He's waiting on Samuel's arrival. Hurry, Samuel, hurry. What's keeping you? Saul doesn't dare go into battle without first sacrificing to God, but making a sacrifice is not the king's privilege. It requires a priest, and so he needs Samuel to come and offer the sacrifice. Again, Saul is being tested. Will he let the severity of his circumstances, will he let the fickle allegiance of his people dictate to him what he does? Will he be an externally motivated person? Will he cave in to the external pressures that are forcing him and pushing him to disobey God? Will you? Will you? Will you cave in to those pressures in your life that are pushing you away from God? That are tempting you to disobey? Oh, if I don't act soon, it's going to be... God has told you to wait. What are you going to do? The pressure mounts in chapter 13, verse 8. We're told, then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattered from him. Samuel said seven days. It's been seven days. Where's Samuel? And the pressure is really building. F.B. Meyer once said, God can only use those who trust him absolutely, and he often tests them by long delays. Understand, it's a prerequisite for Christian service, the willingness to wait. Get ahead of God. And you get out on your own. God wants us to learn to wait on Him. 
He wants us to learn to slow down our step if necessary. To get in sync with Him. Not too far ahead, not too far behind. Look at what Saul does in response to this pressure in verse 9. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. He caved in. And the blood is still dripping from the knife when guess who shows up? (laughs) Samuel. And Saul recounts the pressure that he's been under and he explains in verse 12, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And that was Saul's problem. His inability to control his compulsions. You see, he was always acting on feeling rather than faith. He was always acting on circumstance rather than conviction. Guys, feelings can get us into deep trouble. And an externally motivated person responds to whatever it is that tickles their fancy, whatever it is that pushes their button. We need to tie our feelings to the anchor of God's truth. We need to learn to trust God completely and wait. Be willing to wait if necessary. Be willing not even to act if necessary. If we're not sure that it's God's will for our lives. Samuel has ominous words for Saul. His impatience has been costly. He tells Saul in verses 13 and 14, The Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. When will we learn? We never get behind when we wait on God. When will we learn? It's been said time spent with God is time never wasted. The carpenter saves time who pauses to sharpen the blade on his saw. He saves time, not loses time. When God slows us down to sharpen our blade, he is in reality accelerating our effectiveness, not impeding it. Verse 14 tells us that God wanted a man after his own heart. And he will find that man in a little shepherd boy by the name of David. Saul, though, allowed his insecurities to cause him to view life through the lens. What will this do for me? Whereas David was always concerned with how can I please God? Here's a little point that I think fits here. It goes, when conducting the band, you'll find it's allowed. You're expected to stand with your back to the crowd. And this really conveys what Saul lacked. He was unable to lead with his back to the crowd. Every move Saul made was a play to the crowd. His goal was always to enhance his image and to look good before people. What about you? What is your goal? Do you allow the winds of circumstance to drive your ship? Or are you anchored to principle? Do you allow your insecurities to make you vulnerable to the opinions of others, though fickle they may be? Or are you trusting God to make you strong? Is image everything to you? I hope not. 
I hope you want to please the Lord. Are you a Saul? Or are you a David? While Saul is still smarting from this judgment, the Philistines are on the move. They take out the Hebrew blacksmiths and they cut off the roads to their own blacksmiths, eliminating the possibility of the Hebrews stockpiling their swords and shields and munitions. This was a strategic move that crippled Israel's fighting force. And sadly, Saul did nothing about it. In chapter 14, verse 2, we find the king on the outskirts of Gibeah sitting under a tree sulking. See, he's totally focused on himself. But his son Jonathan senses the need to go on a secret offensive. I love Jonathan's daring faith in chapter 14, verse 6. There we're told, Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Rather than propping up the status quo like Saul is doing, rather than being afraid to step up because you might make a mistake, Jonathan takes the opposite approach. He wants to take a step of faith. He wants to just see what God will do. Hey, nothing ventured, nothing gained. As far as Jonathan is concerned, you see the difference? Jonathan is an internally motivated person. He is concerned about God and God's glory and God's honor and is acting accordingly. Guys, we need to be willing to take some ventures of faith. God blesses people who are not content to just sit back and let life come to them, but are looking for opportunities to count for Jesus Christ. Men and women who are not afraid to take the initiative, to go on the offensive. These are the people that God blesses. Hey, look out over the needs. Get a sense of direction. See how God might want to use you and then just be daring enough to go for it. And just see what God will do. I dare you. God loves it when we create impossible situations where he can show off his miracle power. God is just waiting for some of us just to get out there on the limb and get in trouble so he can bail us out. Jonathan doesn't focus on the obstacles. He focuses on the possibilities. And I love his comment, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's just go out there and see what happens. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they venture out in faith, but they're not presumptuous. They pose a little test to be sure that the Lord is with them. They're going to come out into the open so they can be seen by the Philistines. And if the Philistine patrol comes after them, they'll abort the mission. But if the soldiers see them and just sort of call to them and invite them to come down, then they'll take it as a sign that God is in it and they'll fight. When the Philistines see Jonathan, they call out, Come up to us, and we will show you something, literally, and we'll teach you a lesson. Jonathan and his sidekick realize, Hey, it's a go. God's in this thing. They're calling us to come down. And in verse 13, he says, it says that he climbed up on his hands and knees with his armor bearer with him, and they fell before Jonathan. You see, Jonathan was an archer. 
That's why he's on his hands and knees. And he's picking them off one at a time. And Jonathan is wounding them with the arrows and then his armor bearer is finishing them off with a sword. And all told, they knock off 20 Philistines, just the two of them. Hey, they just ventured out in faith. Hey, who knows what God might do? And they just took a step of faith and God blessed. And what a great victory. And this was a great victory. Because the news of this sudden attack spread. And coupled with a well-timed earthquake from the Lord, it produced a little hysteria and panic in the camp of the Philistines. Saul suddenly gets news of what's happened, what Jonathan has done and its effect on the Philistines. And he seizes the moment. He launches an attack. The men of Israel rally around him. And a great victory is won. And it's amazing how that the faith and initiative of just a couple of men stirred and moved a whole nation. I love these ventures of faith. I love to take ventures of faith. Just step out and see what God will do. Let me sum up the four ingredients of Jonathan's venture of faith. I hope you'll take an initiative. I hope you will want to gain new ground for Christ. When you take an adventure of faith, here's what's involved. First, a daring faith. Second, a deliberate plan. They had an idea in mind. Third, a discreet approach. They didn't just run into the camp kamikaze style. They kind of prayed about it and sought the Lord ahead of time, got his wisdom. And fourth, a divine intervention. When they took the venture of faith, God got into the venture. He joined them in the venture. And the earthquake aided in the victory. You see, with a daring faith, a deliberate plan, a discreet approach, and some divine intervention, people of small means can accomplish great things for God. The rest of chapter 14 reveals the impulsiveness of Saul. Again, he's more concerned about himself than the people around him. Before his army goes off into battle, he forces everyone to take a vow not to eat until Saul has been avenged. How foolish. How are they going to fight if they're famished? Jonathan wasn't around when Saul took this vow. And so when he stumbles across some Philistine honey, he digs in, just scarfs it up. And when he's told about this foolish vow that his father has made, he says in verses 29 and 30, my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines. I think there's a spiritual lesson here. Some people are so busy serving the Lord, so busy fighting battles for the Lord, that they don't take time to feed their own soul. Guys, if you are always giving out and you never take the time to replenish your spiritual strength, well, then it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that eventually you're going to become faint and you're going to become weak. If your outtake 
or your output exceeds your intake, you're going to be in trouble at some point. You're going to dry up spiritually and you're going to be no good to God. How much greater the victory could have been if you had been feeding yourself constantly, if you had been setting aside time. Hey, the kingdom of God is not going to fail because you take an hour to spend with the Lord. God can allow for that. I think every believer needs a little honey from God's word to keep going, to keep growing, to be all that God wants us to be. Don't be so busy serving that you don't savor the honey from God's word. What Jonathan says, though, in verse 30, though it's true, I think he was probably wrong to criticize his father in front of the people. And it provided them a license to break their vow. And in verse 32, they all start scarfing up everything that can be eaten. And in a sense here, Jonathan has undermined the king's authority. Saul, though, overreacts. Both are wrong. Rather than renouncing his promise to kill the violator of the vow, or rather than at the very least acknowledging that since Jonathan was not around when the vow was taken, he should be exempt Saul goes to the extreme, and because he has broken the vow, Saul tries to kill his own son, Jonathan. Why would he do this? I'll tell you why. Saul is so concerned with his own image. He is so concerned that people might consider him to be weak or not a man of his word, that to prove his point... To justify his own ego, he is willing to slay his own son. And we're told in verse 45 that it takes the people to rise up and protect Jonathan from his own father. Listen, Saul's insecurities are causing him to begin to lose grip on reality. It's sad, this story of Saul. In verse 49, we're told told of Saul's family. He and his wife, Ahinoam, had three sons, Jonathan Jeshuai and Malkishio, Malkishua. You can just add in your try. He also had two daughters, Merab and Michael. And he had an uncle by the name of Abner who served as the general in his army. And we're told in verse 52 that Saul's army employed an interesting form of the draft. They went out, and any good man that they saw, they made a part of their army. Rather than Uncle Sam, it was Uncle Abner, won't you? (laughs) We're told now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. You remember in chapter 8, when Israel cried out for a king... Samuel warned them that the king would take their finest young men. And now that warning has come true. You see, they underestimated the ferocity of kings. Chapter 15 marks the beginning of the end for King Saul. God gives him a mission. God has an old score to settle with the Amalekites, the men, the women, the children, The nursing babies, even the livestock, should all be executed. And Saul defeats the Amalekites, but he doesn't follow the Lord. He doesn't obey. 
In fact, he spares the king and he keeps back the livestock. He must have figured, hey, why waste good ground beef? Maybe we'll want to have a barbecue back at the palace, you know. There's some pretty good lamb chops here. You know, God didn't really mean what he said, you know. Verses 10 and 11 tell us, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. How sad when the God of all patience regrets setting you up in a ministry, whether it's that of king or pastor or servant or father or spouse. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel and he cried out to the Lord all night. Verse 12 says that after Saul's victory over the Amalekites, he sets up a monument to himself and to his triumph. Isn't it sad how Saul has changed? You remember back in chapter 11, after his victory over the Ammonites, he was concerned with making sure that the Lord received the glory. That nothing overshadowed the salvation of the Lord. But here, he takes the glory for himself. You see, once he got the attention of the people, he did everything within his power to hold on to it. These are the marks of a man who's controlled by his insecurities. When Samuel meets Saul at Gilgal, the king greets him in verse 13. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. (laughs) I love Samuel's reply. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? And the lowing of the oxen which I hear. What do you mean you fulfilled the commandment of the Lord? I hear the sheep. You didn't slay them all. Saul's like the little boy who was called three times to supper. When he finally got to the table, his mom asked him, Billy, what took you so long? And Billy responded, I didn't hear you the first two times you called. Likewise, Saul is giving himself away. He makes this denial while there's oxen bleeding in the background. Come on. Saul, you're caught red-handed. Saul tries to excuse his disobedience by saying that he has spared the oxen for sacrifice. And of course, Saul has confused sacrifice with obedience. And many people do. They assume that you can do as you please as long as occasionally you make a sacrifice. You throw God a, a bone. That'll pacify him for a while. Make him a little sacrifice. That'll, that'll get him off your back for a while. They figure that God can be pacified, that God can be bought off by offering some kind of suitable sacrifice. Those people don't know God. God could care very little about your sacrifice. God doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants you. He wants your heart, your devotion. He wants your obedience, your willingness to follow Him no matter what. He wants a relationship of submission and trust. And an occasional tip of the hat is no substitute. Samuel tells Saul in verse 22, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. Outwardly, I'm sure Saul considered himself to be a faithful Hebrew. 
When it came to religion and rituals, he made all the right moves. But you see, he lacked a tenderness toward God. On the surface, Saul was not a diabolical person. He wasn't into witchcraft. He wasn't into idolatry. And the Lord reminded him that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness as idolatry. Sin is not just blatant action. It's festering attitudes as well. You see, Saul was rejected because he was not a man after God's own heart. He was a man after his own heart and his own desires. And look at Saul's explanation for his disobedience. Verse 24, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words. And look why. He, he knows. He's a- accurately diagnosed his problem. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. It was peer pressure. He cared more about people's approval than God's rejection. Again, an externally motivated person. Saul asked for pardon. But in verse 25, Samuel replies, You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Personal forgiveness could be granted, but Saul had forfeited his position in ministry. God will always forgive the soul who repents, but some sins can eliminate you from service. The humiliation of losing his position is such an assault on Saul's fragile ego that he can't stand it. He just can't stand looking bad. And so he loses his composure. He wants his way no matter what. And so as Samuel turns to walk away, Saul reaches out and grabs his robe. He just can't stand it. And when he does so, he rips off the border of that robe. And in verses 28 and 29, Samuel tells him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel, which is an interesting name for God. It's only mentioned here. Will not lie nor relent. For he is not a man that he should relent. After that devastating announcement, most people would have hung their heads and walked away. But not Saul. He is so addicted to his image. Look what he asks Samuel in verse 30. I have sinned. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. In other words, help me maintain my image before the elders. Help me keep up with my religious pretense before the people. Samuel returns with Saul, but it has nothing to do with Saul's image. He returns to finish the job that God had given Saul. Samuel takes a sword and he does what Saul should have done, kill the king of Amalek. And he takes that sword and he hacks Agag up into pieces. 
The first chicken McNuggets in the Bible. Ah, gag. Gag. Ah, gag. A gag. Gag. Verse 35 tells us, And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Up until this point, Saul has been king over Israel for a decade. He'll remain king for 30 more years. But the Lord will no longer be with him. And as a result, nothing significant really happens for the next 30 years in Israel. Author Philip Keller sums up the career of King Saul. He was forever a man determined to protect his own self-interests. Ultimately, he simply became a pathetic castaway. His end was a dreadful alienation from God. Saul's replacement enters the picture next week in chapter 16. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the example of Saul. And Lord, I hope we all leave tonight with a new concern that we don't want to be like Saul. Help us, Lord. Fill us with the Spirit. Turn us, Lord, from the inside out. Free us from our insecurities. Make us other-centered people. Give us an internal reservoir of strength and power so that we'll no longer be externally motivated. So that it'll no longer be the opinions of others that sway us, but that it'll be your approval in our hearts. That it'll no longer be circumstances that'll influence us, but it'll be the power of God in our lives propelling us to take ventures of faith, to step out, to step up for you. Help us, Lord. Fill us tonight, Lord, with the power of your Holy Spirit. We need you, Lord. Forgive us for living like it all depends on us. It doesn't. It all depends on you, Lord. We need to humble ourselves and submit our hearts to you. Let you have your way in us, Lord. Father, I pray that you'll work in our hearts and our lives tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.